0: Uh, well, you can have a seat. And good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith. I was here last week, but in case you weren't here, uh, I am our college pastor at our Anderson location. So uh, this is not normally where I am, and it is just exciting, though, for me to come over uh, to be with y'all. It's, a, it's an honor. It's a privilege for me. I was in youth ministry here for a few years, and so, uh, man, it's good. I got the scars from those times. I see the, you know, my blood's probably in the cement somewhere out there and so man it's it's good to be back in my roots. Uh, it's, it's always fun to be with y'all, uh, and it's fun that we're walking through this, this series this summer about legacy. We're, we're looking at, essentially, the, the lives of men and women in our scripture, uh, these biblical historical figures, and, and we're looking at what does their life point to? What lessons can we learn? What, what truths are evident in the ways that they, that they lived? What, what carries beyond their death? Uh, what's attached to their name? And so last week, for example, we looked at the life of a man named Abimelech, who uh, kind of carried forward this idea. We, we see through him then. It's foolish to put all of our hope and confidence in this world, because uh, it doesn't last. Uh, this morning, we're, we're shifting our focus to another man, another figure in our scripture. In fact, we're in the book of Judges again, in chapter 13. If you want to turn there, and we're looking at the life of a man named Samson, and, and what we're going to see in his legacy is the fact that uh, we all will fail, Right? Every single one of us, we find ourselves, despite our very best efforts, we can find ourselves failing again and again and again. And, and sometimes it's, it's something beyond our control. Sometimes it's, uh, it's due to our own kind of personal misconceptions and our own personal faults. All right, ready? Second. We got to use this one trap, one stair shusha. No. Up. We gotta use this one just shush shush shusha. I don't know. One just star shine. Well, yeah, one just shine. One, one just shishara. One just shush 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 shusha. Shush, shush, shusha? One just shari. No, shari. One just shari. You know, almost this argument, the drop like <laughs> my name is shut up. Shire, yeah. one Worcestershire, j- Worcestershire. <laughs> I don't the true. I don't know what kind of the the country come this from. Baham Italian. I don't know what I gotta say. I'm Italian now. Worcestershire, sauce. <laughs> <laughs> Right, we all find ourselves in these moments with that sweat and that sauce, right? We we find ourselves despite our very best efforts, despite applying ourselves to to our you know top capacity, we will still fail. And this is, a, this is a tough reality. This is a tough thing to accept, because we live in kind of this pervasive culture of being told that if we just try our best, if we try and try and try again, if we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and give it our all, we will ultimately find success, right? That's the American dream, that, that you can make yourself be anything you want to be. You can get yourself anywhere you want to go. You have the potential to do anything, to achieve any dream, And yet, the truth is we still find ourselves in those moments. Faced with our own failure, our own inability to reach the potential that we thought we had. And when we're looking at that failure, when we're confronted with that mistake, with that brokenness, with that inability, with that imperfection, how do we respond? What do we do with that? You see, in our culture, we're told, well, you just... You just do better, right? If you, if you didn't achieve your dream, just, you just need to work hard. You need to watch a TED Talk or a YouTube tutorial, right? You need to look up dictionary.com for the pronunciation of Worcestershire, and, and you, you just get better, right? You just need to do it again, and, and yet what we find is that even if we apply ourselves over and over and over and over again, there are certain goals that are just outside of our grasp. There are certain purposes that we just, missions that we just can't find ourselves accomplishing. So what's the real solution? In the harsh reality of our own imperfection, how do we deal with it? How do we deal with that failure that we all at times will feel? When we look in scripture, we see a path forward we see the right response, and we'll see it eventually in the life of Samson. You see, Samson starts out his life in Judges chapter 13 with this incredible potential, the highest potential of almost anyone in all of Scripture. Uh, He is basically born into this Almost prophecy, this destiny that's laid before him. You see, there was a man named Manoah from Zorah, from the Danite tribe, and his wife was infertile and she was childless. But the Lord's angelic messenger appeared to the woman, and he told her, You are infertile and childless, but you will conceive and have a son. He says, There's this miraculous event that's about to occur. God is going to give you a son. He's gonna, he's gonna give you this, th- fulfill this hope, this dream that I'm sure you've had. This struggle that you've been dealing with. Just, God's gonna meet you in that place. He's gonna give you a son, but be careful because you're not supposed to drink wine or beer, and you're not supposed to eat any food that will make you ritually unclean. Because look, you're gonna conceive, you're gonna have a son, but you must never cut his hair, for the child will be dedicated to God from birth, and he will begin to deliver Israel from the power of the Philistines. So this woman is approached. She's been given this promise. There's this child she's going to bear that has incredible potential. And as the angel is laying out these kind of principles, he's laying out these commands, these kind of guidelines, it's strange to us. They almost seem like these random selection of like things to do. But at that time, the people of Israel, they are recognizing what's being laid out. They recognize these requirements as part of what is called a Nazarite vow. You see, the Nazarite vow in the nation of Israel was this um, practice... That you could walk into, any man or any woman could, could choose, it, generally they would choose as adults, to, to enter into this vow because they had a task in mind. They had a purpose that they wanted to fulfill. So they said, man, I, I want to you know, raise this crop, or I want to raise up this child. I want to defeat this enemy. I want to move in this direction. I want to rededicate my life. And, and as they have these goals, what they'd say is, okay, I'm going to take this vow. I'm going to take this Nazarite vow. Literally, the first part of it, Nazar, it's this idea of being set apart. It's distinct. They say, I'm going to separate myself from the norm, and I'm going to do this for a time, for a specific time, to accomplish a specific goal. And so I'm not going to drink wine. What that meant was that you're saying, I'm going to always be available for the call of the Lord. Nothing's going to interfere with my mental capacity. I'm always ready for God's command. Not only that, I'm going to avoid anything that would make me ritually unclean. I'm not going to go near dead bodies. I'm not going to eat unclean food because I always want to not just be ready mentally. I want to be ready spiritually. I want to be holy and set apart and and not just able to answer the call of the Lord, but I want to be ready at all times to enter into his presence. And as I do these things for myself personally, what's going to happen is I'm going to also not cut my hair because that allows everyone around me to see that I'm in this vow, that I've kind of made this pledge, that I'm in this new season of life, walking after this new purpose. So it's this inward reality that's uh, exposed publicly through the hair length, and, and what happens is at the end of that vow, when they accomplish that task, when it comes to its end, when they fulfill that purpose, what they would do is they would cut their hair, and they would perform a sacrifice. And, and that would signify, okay, it's done. It's complete. And was like, yeah, you did it. And they're like, Thanks. You know, and that's, that was the Nazarite vow. And, and this is incredibly interesting, though, because this was, again, this was a choice made by adults. But this, in this case, the angel is saying, this is a choice that we are making beforehand for your child. This isn't an adult who's self-selecting himself into this role. In fact, this is a child that's being born into it. God is not choosing, selecting a, a Savior out of the group of people. He's raising him from birth. He's preparing this child, this this small, you know, yet-to-be-even-conceived child. God already has a plan in place. He has a destiny for him to fulfill, a a mission for him to walk in. And it's to deliver Israel, right? He's dedicated God, why? To deliver Israel. Israel from these horrific enemies, the Philistines, boo, who were these really bad dudes. They they were holding Israel down, they were holding them captive and, and it was so horrific that, that Israel they were in torment, they were in suffering. And this happens over and over again in the course of the book of Judges. As we look across Israel's history, we actually see it's sort of a cycle through the book of Judges where they, they, they're in line with the Lord. They're like, yay! And then they, do, they walk into disobedience. They reject God uh, as, their, as their God. They reject the one true living God, Yahweh, and, and they wander. And so then they suffer consequences. They get uh, obliterated by enemies. They're They're defeated. And in that defeat, they eventually, over time, regret it, right? They're like, this is terrible. And so they repent and they call out to God and say, God, we need you to come, we need you to save us. And what's interesting, though, in Judges 13 is that Israel, they've been defeated. They rejected Yahweh, they've been defeated, but they haven't actually called out to the Lord. They haven't actually asked for redemption. You see, I have two kids. I have a -a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter and a -a one-and-a-half-year-old son. My son, Lawrence, uh, is often in distress, okay? That's just, when you're one and a half years old, that's just kind of the life you live. You're just distressed a lot because tables are just the right height to, like, clock you in the head, right? Like, couches are just high enough that you can climb on it, but then you fall off, and and he is constantly finding himself in pain, self-inflicted pain, I might add, I must add, and when that happens, he cries out, right? He's upset, and he and he comes running to me or to his mom, and and he's like, oh, I blah blah, right? And he's trying to explain, like the table, but just comes like guy guy guy. And as his, as he's coming to us and pain, right, our hearts squatch, and we 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 love him and we want what's best for him, and and so when he's crying and running towards us with his arms, like, oh, 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 we what, we pick him up. Sometimes we take a picture first, but
1: <laughs> eventually we
0: pick him up. Right? And we hold him and we console him and, and we comfort him. Why? Because we love him. We want what's best. We, we want to protect him from those dangers. That happens when he comes running towards us with his arms up in the air. But I'll tell you, there are other moments where he you know, climbs up on the table after we tell him not to over and over again, but he does anyway and he falls off because he's a, a fool. And he will hurt himself and he will be just laying there. And he's just laying there and crying. And in those moments, I don't wait for him to pick himself up and run towards me with his arms in the air. In those moments when he's crying, when he's suffering, when he's in pain, I go to him. Right? Because I'm his dad. I love him. I would do anything for him. And when I see him in pain, I have to do something. God looks at the nation of Israel in Judges 13, and they're, they're suffering. They're in pain, and it's very much self-inflicted. And they're not even asking him for help. But he says, I'm going I'm to move towards you. I'm going to chase after you, even in your destruction, even in your failure, even in your brokenness, that you are refusing to acknowledge. I'm still going to come after you. Because you see, Israel had bought into this lie, that they should live their lives based on the desires of their own personal hearts, Literally, the, the way Judges puts it is, they did what was right in their own eyes. That's what, that's what defined the nation of Israel at that time. Everyone did what was right in his own eye. And they were so deep in that brokenness, in that failure, in that mistake, that they couldn't even see their need for a Savior. And yet God said, I'm going to send a Savior anyway. And he's going to deliver you. And his name is Samson. Samson had all this potential, all this promise, all this hope. And yet when we see it play out in his life, things take a weird turn. See, if we look in Judges chapter 14, we see that Samson went down to Timnah where a Philistine girl caught his eye. And when he got home, he told his father and mother, he says, A Philistine girl in Timnah has caught my eye. Now get her from my wife. Right? Because that's just how it, the world was insane back then. And that's how that worked. And his parents, they get this request from him and they they're a little upset, right? They push back. And it's not because this was strange, right? There was actually, that was just kind of worked. You would parents or you'd have advocates in your family that would go and talk with their family and work out a deal. But but that wasn't what was setting them off. It was the fact that it was a Philistine girl, right? This isn't one of those like cute, fun, like romantic comedy divides. It's like, Samson, she's in a rival dance crew. Like, what are you going to (laughs) do? It's like, it doesn't matter. You know, like that's not what this is. She is a part of the oppressive, conquering nation of heathens. She is a person who has rejected the living God. She has rejected Yahweh. And she's following after false gods, false idols. Her, her nation is literally murdering, murdering and, and, and oppressing the nation of Israel. And yet Sam says, yeah, that's, ooh, that's, that's who I want to be with. That's who I want with me by my side for the rest of my life is a member of the enemy. And so his parents, they're like, what, are, what is wrong with you? Like, how, how deluded have you become? How blinded are you to the truth? And they push back, but Samson's like, fine, if you don't help me, I'm just going to do it myself. And so he goes down to Timnah. And when he approached the vineyards of Timnah, he, he saw a roaring young lion attacking him. So on his way, he gets ambushed. By this by this wild animal, that's a lion. And, and when that happens, the Lord's Spirit it empowered Samson and he tore the lion in two with his bare hands as easily as one would tear a young goat. Right? Just one of those like everyday life illustrations, right? <laughs> you know, you know, like you know, like when you tear a goat, right? <laughs> Think about that, but it's a lion, right? Like that's what's happening. You know, you know how it is. Just as someone would tear, I guess it's like that, I don't know, but just as he would tear go, he tears this lion apart, but he didn't tell his father and mother what he had done. Why? Because he's not supposed to be around dead bodies, right? Remember, that was one of the early requirements of his life, that's part of him being set apart. And yet, what this is, is just another instance of where not only is he failing to be set apart in, in who he's marrying, right? He says, I'm going to ingrain myself within this horrific heathen nation. He says, but on my way, I'm just going to have this kind of bonus sin of departing from God's original purpose, my original potential, my, the fact that I'm supposed to be set apart. I'm just going to go near this dead body. In fact, later, he, he eats food out of it. it he's, he's walking in this horrific denial of his true purpose. And when he gets down to Timnah, he spoke to the girl, and in his opinion, she was just the right one. And this is a very poignant, important moment. Because literally right here in the Hebrew, what's being communicated, the, the wording, is that she was right in the eyes of Samson. In other words, the author is beyond a doubt as obvious as can be, showing us that Samson has fallen into the exact same brokenness and destruction as the people he's supposed to be delivering. He is living his life based on what is right in his own eye. And suddenly, all that potential, all that promise, all that hope, all of that destiny that had been given to him, It just feels wasted. It feels like he's just wasting all of that original potential. We should be building to this monumental triumphant moment, and yet we just don't. Welcome to Jurassic Park. is swelling, right? The moment is building. The anticipation is right there. And Samson is the little flutophone melodica that comes in, that takes over and just creates massive disappointment, right? Like that's just <laughs> what he's doing. The way he's living his life, it, it, it communicates this incredible, it signifies this incredible loss of potential, this waste of potential. And it's not just something that we see in, in his failure, but it's it's something that catches up to him in his life. You see, if we read the next few chapters as we look through the rest of Samson's life, we would see that that he has these occasional victories against the Philistines. He he kills a lot of people. It's just like murder, 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 murder. Over chapters 14, 15, and 16. He's just he's he is always like at, at odds with the Philistines. And what we see, though, in those moments, in those battles, in those kinds of attacks, he is never motivated by kind of a—it's never a righteous cause, right? It's never for, like, the good of Israel. Every single time it's because he gets frustrated or he's upset or some guys, like, win a bet. And he's like, I don't like that. And so he just murders 40 people. Like, that's a thing. And he, over and over and over again, has kind of these self-motivated, self-motivated, these ideas that, that just he feels like he wants to do these things, and so he does them. right? He's still living based on what's right in his own eye. As a side effect, right, Israel's enemy is getting hurt in the process, but it's still something that's just kind of Samson doing what Samson wants to do. And we see this eventually catch up to him in chapter 16, where the Philistines, they'd set up this trap, and they, they lured Samson in, and they basically cut him off from his support. And they they kind of pulled him away, not just from his people, but from his Lord. And when he's isolated like that, he's, he's weakened. And he's vulnerable. And in that moment, the Philistines captured him. And they gouged out his eyes. And they brought him down to Gaza, and they bound him in bronze chains, and he became a grinder in the prison. So those eyes that he followed day in, day out, are taken away. Right? The, the people, the enemy that he's supposed to be triumphantly victorious, standing over, they, they've got him in chains. The strength that, 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 that defined him, the strength that built his name, his legacy across Israel, and, and their, the good in their eyes, and the, the evil in his enemy's eyes, right? the, the fear in his enemies, that strength is being used to grind the enemy's grain, to feed their bellies. Samson, for all intents and purposes, any way you look at it, he denied his purpose and he's defined by his failed potential. He's defined as a failure. And what's tragic is that a lot of times we find ourselves in that moment. We can find ourselves feeling like like that failure, When we had those intentions, we had those expectations. We we wanted to say these things or do that stuff or or serve these people or 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 live this way with our family, be this kind of husband, be this kind of wife. And and yet we find ourselves in moments failing. Right? I I have these two kids that I love, my daughter Charlotte, my my son Lawrence, and and they're wonderful. And they're an incredible gift that that God has given me. Uh, They're very happy when they're with food. I realized after I selected these photos that they're both about to eat, and that's why they're happy. But, I mean, I I love them so much, and and I would do anything for them. And yet I still find myself in moments failing them as a parent. I mean, literally literally just this this morning, just this morning, we, we were getting ready for church. We're trying to get all these things ready. I'm supposed to come up to Southwood and, and preach or whatever. And so uh, we're trying to get all these things together. And we had, like, some family in town. And we had uh, these other moving pieces. And everyone's kind of, like, got other things spinning. We've got to get someone dressed. And somebody peed in their bed. I won't say who, Charlotte. And, they did all you know, all these... All these kind of things happen, right? And there's just these issues, and we're like getting this stuff, and someone needs to eat, and that person needs to whatever. And and as we're getting all these things together, uh, there was this moment that came where, where as we're trying to you know get everything ready so that I can go, is uh, there was this this ottoman in our in our living room that uh, it kind of got broken yesterday, and and I need to fix it, and, and I hadn't yet, and and the kids were kind of playing this game on top of it, and it was making the problem worse. And, and so in that moment. As I'm looking at this thing and it's getting broken a little bit more, I'm getting frustrated. I, I almost take it as like this personal offense. Like for whatever my, reason, my mind goes to like, they're just, they're out to get me. Right? Like that's what I assume. <laughs> and in that moment, as my kids are doing this, they're playing on this thing and they're just trying to have fun. I, I, I get frustrated and, and, I, and, I, and I raise my voice and I'm, and I'm angry. And, and I, I tell them, they got to stop. I'm like, stop, stop it. Stop. And I lash out. And my daughter is old enough now that, that man, I, I see it in her face. It hurt. And she'll tell me. She's old enough now that she'll tell us. She'll be like, that. she told me. She goes, Dad, I, don't, I didn't like it when you were mean. When you had a mean voice. Like, it hurt my feelings. And man, when I hear that, it's a dad. I feel like a failure, right? I made a mistake. Discipline needs to happen for sure. I want what's best for them. And part of that is showing them the way the world works. And, but, but, but to lash out, to just be angry, to, to take this personal offense at their, you know, innocent mistake, it's not good. And the frustration's born out of the fact that, that we're trying to like get ready so that I can come to preach at church, right? It's like salt in the wound so that I can come be a professional Christian. Right? Like that's, that's the worst part. And we find ourselves in those moments feeling like failures, looking our mistake in the eye, and sometimes it's just a thing that's kind of personal, that we're aware of. Sometimes it's a mistake that affects the lives of people around us. So what do we do with that? Sometimes we, we allow those mistakes and those failures, those, those uh, imperfections, that brokenness, we allow it to kind of weigh us down, right? We, we hold on to it and we just don't let go. And we still regret. We still feel guilt and shame over a mistake we made maybe even years ago. Some of us still carry that, the words we never should have said, the action we never should have done. Some of us, we just want to live in denial, right? We just push past it. We're like, ah, you know, whatever, and we dismiss it. And maybe there's people that are still frustrated, but they just need to get over it. Or maybe there's like these negative consequences, we're like, it'll be fine. And yet when we look in Scripture, when we look at the lives of people like Samson, we don't see... At the end of his life, we don't see this overriding, crippling shame. We also don't see this delusional ignoring of reality. Instead, what we see at the end of his life is a humility, is a weakness that's acknowledged, but then hand it over to the Lord. You see, at the end of Samson's life, after he's been in prison for some extended period of time—could have been months, could have been years—the rulers of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, to celebrate. Right, their their most wanted criminal—he's in captivity. He's been given over. He he's theirs. Right, they 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 got him. And so they 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 want to celebrate. They want to have this huge celebration. They want to have a feast. They want to have a party. And they're like, "Hey, our God has handed Samson, our enemy, over to us." Right? This is a big national victory for them. They're trending on Philistine Twitter hashtag Samson Shmampson, Right? Like they're like, "We got him. We got him." And so as they gather together, what we see is there's all these prominent leaders, thousands of the the top leaders and authorities of their nation are gathering to celebrate the defeat of their enemy. And in that moment, Samson is trotted out and he's brought out to entertain them. We don't know exactly how, but I'm sure it was incredibly demeaning. He's trotted out to be this entertainment for the party. And when he's there, strapped between these two pillars, he calls out to the Lord and he says, oh, master, Lord, remember me. And what he's saying here is so significant because never before in Samson's life did he ever call out to the Lord in a way that put God's authority over his own. Never before. And if you read through his entire life, you never see him call to the Lord and putting God over himself as master or Lord. And yet in this moment, at the very end of his life, what Samson is finally realizing is he says, you know what? I have made legitimate mistakes. I am imperfect. I am broken. I am incapable in and of myself to fulfill all the dreams that I might have. I'm weak. But rather than just letting that guilt and shame just drive them down and keep them down and cripple them, he calls out to God and says, Lord, I want you to remember me. See me in this moment. And he asked the Lord for strength. He says, God, give me strength one more time that I might live in the purpose you give me, that I might fulfill the mission that you gave me at the beginning so many years ago. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars that supported the temple, and he leaned against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And he pushed, and he said, let me die with the Philistines. So he pushed hard, and the temple collapsed on the rulers and all the people in it. And he killed many more in his death than he had killed during his life. At the end of his life, Samson has this moment where he essentially fulfills his purpose. He essentially fulfills his vow. You see, Samson had been in captivity for a while, right? And, and part of that is he was denied the comforts of things like wine, he hadn't been drinking wine. It was away from him. In fact, he also in captivity was denied the company of people, right, living or dead. And Samson in captivity, we're told that his hair, it grew long. It grew out. Right? There weren't any comfort. There weren't any barbers that were coming and helping him out. And suddenly Samson, through this captivity, he finds himself almost back in that Nazarite vow. And he reaches this moment where he performs a sacrifice. He brings it to a close by offering the sacrifice of himself. And even after a lifetime of, of selfishness, of wasted potential, what we see in this moment is God forgiving Samson's failures and continuing to provide Samson with purpose with a higher, greater purpose. Our brokenness opens the door for God's grace. That's the beauty of our brokenness. That it creates an opportunity to to, to point people to the Lord. To show people what God has done. Because He's faithful to forgive. He, He wants to rescue us. It's okay for us to not be okay because we have a God who rescued his enemies out of their self-chosen death and destruction. This is what he tells us through the letter that Paul wrote the church in Ephesus, that, that we were all dead in our transgressions. We were all dead in our sins. All of us, we were living out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and our mind. We were by nature children of wrath. Right? Every single one of us, we we were living in that lifestyle. We were adopting that philosophy. We have all lived according to the desires of our eyes based on what's right in our own eye. That's a lie we've all believed. It's a mistake we've all made. And yet... In the midst of that failure, in the midst of that brokenness, in the midst of all those mistakes of being an enemy of God, suddenly God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. It says, it's by grace you've been saved. Suddenly, the fact that we are broken, the fact that we fail, the fact that we're imperfect, it allows us to experience the grace of God. It allows us to see a love that that doesn't fail. It allows us to see a forgiveness that's unconditional. It allows us to see a God who's going to move towards us, who's going to run towards us, even when we're laying there screaming, not even asking for his help. He still pursues us. He still sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice that we needed who lived the perfect life that, that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved, And when he rose again three days later, he says, man, you don't have to be bound by those chains. You're no longer under that enemy. I'm delivering you into a new life. And I'm giving you a new purpose. I'm forgiving you so that you can walk forward and be different so that you can find victory. And so that even when you fail, it points people to the Lord. Even when you fail, you can experience that grace and then extend it to the people around you. God forgives our failure. He provides us with purpose. We will fail, but God is faithful to forgive. He is always ready to reconcile. He has prepared and provided this path for us to follow. We're His workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand, so that we may do them. God says, I I, I have a purpose for you to walk and a mission for you to accomplish. I want you to be set apart for for that path. He wants us to love him, right? The the grace period, we, we love the Lord our God and then we love our neighbors. We love the people around us. We experience his grace and then we extend it to others. But in order for that to be effective, in order for that to work, we have to be okay with not being okay. We have to accept that we are weak and that we'll fail. We have to be honest about our weakness so that the Lord's strength can be seen. And and we don't accept our weakness as this inevitable. We we, we don't see ourselves as lost causes, right? God says, I've given you a spirit, not of timidity, not of failure. I've given you a spirit of power and strength. I want you to walk in a newness of life. I want you to walk in victory. He says, I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to give you this way out, this new opportunity, this new choice that you can make to choose the Lord, to choose victory over defeat. He says, but ultimately, you're still going to find yourself at times in some areas continuing to fail. And when that happens, how do we deal with it? How do we present it? Do we accept the forgiveness of God and continue to move forward, asking His forgiveness that we know He'll extend? Uh, do, we, do, we, do we see it and, and acknowledge it for ourselves and then have the strength and the confidence to open up to the people around us, to admit our fault and failure to them? Because our weakness can be a witness. Now more than ever, the world around us, they look at people And they want authenticity, right? Vulnerability, it reveals this authenticity that that the people around us need to see in order to really trust us. We can't try to maintain this this ridiculous illusion, this image of perfection, of being bulletproof, when we're just not. No one's going to believe that. And it's unrelated. People don't relate to that. So instead, using discernment, Right? Within, with discretion. Not that we're sharing all things with everyone all the time. But we recognize, you know what, there are times and places to be vulnerable. To admit that, yeah, I'm, I'm still struggling to, to follow Jesus the way that I want to follow him. I'm still struggling to, 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 to live this life that I know God's calling me to live. I, I still struggle with these doubts or these fears or these frustrations. And when we do that, what it does is it opens a window for us to talk about the grace of God. When I talk about forgiveness with my daughter, it's an opportunity for me to point her to Jesus. When I wrong her, when I, when I make her feel bad, I, I ask for her forgiveness. I have to. I ask her to forgive me, and, and, and God is gracious, and he gives us these little, I think, pictures of grace, and that right now, she's just so quick to forgive. At three and a half, she's, I know it will be so different when she's 13. I know, right? I'm aware, But for right now, I ask her, Charlotte, will you forgive me for hurting your feelings? She will, it's always yes. Yes. Let's keep playing. Come on. And in those moments, I have opportunity to to talk to her because she sees that everyone makes mistakes, even dad. And I get to talk to her about how, you know, yeah, like that person hurt your feelings or, yeah, I hurt your feelings and... You know it's great. That that's why Jesus came to save us. Right? He came to save us because we all make mistakes. And God wants to forgive us. And because of Jesus, he can. He can forgive us. And we can have a wonderful relationship with him. And we can love him and he loves us. And I mean, that's possible because Jesus came and he died. He paid the price that that our mistakes made. And suddenly, even in those little failures, God can be glorified and grace can abound. So where are we in that process? Where are we on that path? Maybe some of us are still feeling crippled. Man, We're, we're still feeling just weighed down and we've got this guilt we've got those mistakes and we don't know what to do with them in which case mean today's the day that we can hand that to the lord and we can trust that he's righteous and that he's just to forgive we if we confess our sins we ask him for that forgiveness he 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 will extend it immediately jesus paid for that some of us maybe we're living in denial of the mistakes we've made of the brokenness that we have of of the destruction maybe we've created not only in our own lives, but in the lives of others. And and we need to come to a realization that, yeah, I, I make mistakes just like everybody else. And I need forgiveness. I need God's grace just as much, if not more than every single person in my life. Paul, over the course of his ministry, this incredible apostle, this leader of our faith, this founder of countless churches, Over the course of his life, as you read through his letters, you will see that over time he begins to see himself more and more and more and more in need of the grace of God. And hopefully that's a realization that we all have that builds and expands over time. But it shouldn't take us out of the fight. Instead, it should bring us to the truth that we'll never be perfect, but that we'll always have purpose. Purpose. That our weakness doesn't take us out of God's plan. But in fact, that weakness can be a witness that we use to point people to the Lord. So please join me as we ask the Lord to, to guide us to that next step. God, we thank you that you've given us this incredible lesson to learn from the life of Samson. Lord, this legacy that continued beyond his, his faults and his failures. And Lord, we just pray that, that we wouldn't make the same mistakes. God, we pray that we would rely on you, ultimately, as our source of strength, as as our source of victory. That we would turn to you for forgiveness instead of running from you in shame. So if you would take a moment now and just ask the Lord, say, God, show me. How am I handling failure right now? God, convict me. Bring to my mind where is it that I'm... I maybe I'm holding things against myself that you've already forgiven. Or God, show me where is it that I'm I'm ignoring the conviction that you want to bring. Ask the Lord. Say, God, how am I handling that imperfection in my life? And God, how can I use that to? to point people towards yourself, whether it's a conversation I need to have where I ask forgiveness, whether it's a, just a, a mentality I need to have of being ready, ready to extend grace and forgiveness to people who have wronged me. Ask the Lord, say, God, show me. Where is it that I'm, that I'm holding back? And God, where is it that I can move forward? Ask him that right now. So God, we love you. We trust you. God, we thank you that you still love us We pray that we would, again, just walk out of this place as people are prepared to to point the world to you. And we pray these things in your will. Amen. All right. Well, we love you guys, and we'll see you in a week.